0: Welcome to Crisis Leadership Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast series, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about how organizations can develop strategies to detect potential crises, manage those crises creatively and leverage what is learned through crises positively. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. Nia Yari Giyam, Jaganba na Giyabu,
1: Yarrawa peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giyabu and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba.
0: Our guest for this episode has spent more than 30 years working across Queensland government and not-for-profit organisations as an executive, board chair and non-executive director. Jane Hedger has been responsible for statewide media and communications for Queensland Health and the Department of the Premier and Cabinet. She has delivered statewide services, operational reviews and pandemic, emergency and disaster communications management. Jane Hedger, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's lovely to be here. Jane, can you tell the audience a little bit about your background and also your current role and the organisation you work for?
1: I've had... A little bit of, um, I think they call it a multi path or a multi pod career. I started 30 years ago as a drama teacher, and since then I moved into about 10 years after that, moved into work with Queensland government working for uh, mental health, doing integrated arts in health programs. Then I moved into Health Promotion in the Breast Screening Program, then into Media and Communications. And I did that across Toowoomba Hospital, Darling Downs Public Health, Royal Children's Hospital, PA Hospital, Brisbane South Public Health, Southern Zone, uh, Clinical and Statewide Services, Forensic and um, Scientific Services, then into the Director General's Office to become sort of Head of Communications and Media across Queensland Health, then I moved out into the area of IT and online and customer experience, so heading up customer experience for the whole of government with all of the government counters and call centres and internet sites, over about 250 internet sites. Then moved into shared corporate services, looking at the back end of government with HR and finance and, and those corporate services, and then into the Department of Premier and Cabinet managing the move to 1 William Street, which was a large transformational change piece. Then I stepped out. I've, I've since done some work on government infrastructure around hospital car parking of the um, National institutional redress scheme for institutionalized sexual assault and a a number of other things in between. I then started a consultancy, uh, Stormbird's Organizational Strategies. As a result, really, it sort of culminated in all of that where I was working constantly in places where crisis or change would occur and people weren't prepared for it. Yet, time and time again, They were events that we should have and could have foreseen and potentially mitigated or better managed those change um, and crisis events. So I went out uh, in partnership with Leonie Vanderman uh, and we began to consult around strategy and crisis communication. So helping to Expect the unexpected, helping to prevent the um, extremes of crisis and damage to reputation and organisations that can occur when you're not prepared for extreme crisis or change. And we're starting to work with people to put in place business strategies, communication pathways, stakeholder engagement in good times So that when things come along that test you, you have all the systems and all the avenues set up to be able to respond quickly and in an informed, organised manner. So that's where I find myself today um, as a Stormbird, doing some pretty incredible things with organisations around Queensland at the moment. And I'm also then working with Trident Services Australia on a, a large piece around their business strategy to exactly do this in terms to crisis proof the organisation.
0: Jane, that is a quite a career journey from uh, a school drama teacher to uh, crisis communications. It sounds like your career has been one of change in itself.
1: Oh, a- absolutely, Daniel. And I think that I've I've been incredibly lucky. I have had the most magical career there was no planning. It's just, I would be doing something and that would be coming to an end. And someone would ring me and say, we need you to come and solve a problem over here. We need you to come and fix this. We need you to come and work with us on this. So I've been very blessed to have had so many opportunities and very many leadership opportunities. I've, I've also had wonderful mentors and sponsors throughout that process. And I, there are a number of things as you build a career in this space. You need people to bounce off. So you need to find, and for many years, Leone was someone that I bounced off. We were in different industries, but often dealing with crises. So we could bounce those ideas off each other. One of the tips that I have for people is to get build that network of people around you who don't necessarily think like you do, who don't work in the same industry that you do, but to be able to bounce those ideas off and to be able to ring when you're in the middle of the crisis and say, I think I've lost perspective. Here are some of my ideas. Where am I going wrong or what what can you contribute to this? And over the years, having that network of people to both recommend you for jobs or to notice when something comes up that might be of interest to you or to advise you when maybe there's something coming along that, that you haven't seen and say, hey, I think this is heading for your department or I think this is heading in this space. You might want to look at moving now. Uh, or you might want to look at how you're going to deal with what this big change is when it comes. So it's great to have, you've got to have that network of people around you. I could not have done what I've done without having so many wonderful people around me to support me and help me and guide me.
0: Jane, networks are clearly important, but how important are they in a crisis?
1: Oh, hugely so. One of the things I think in any organisation You need to, and this is what we we really impress on clients at Stormbirds, you have to have all of this in place in the good times. So when you enter an organisation, you have to start building those networks, building communication pathways. You've got to know all those people in the organisation who make it tick. And I think for me, in any of the roles I've gone into, getting to know as many people in the organisation as you can, getting to understand how it works and how everyone contributes to that, but then also having that broader network outside. So I've spent the last 22, 23 years mostly working in government, uh, but also I then do some board work with small not-for-profit organisations and the ability in the middle of a crisis to be able to pick up the phone and ring the cleaner down the hall and say, we need you to come in and do this, or ring someone and say, I need these kind of logistics Who should I speak to in your department to talk to about that? Or who do I need to go to in this area over here? And you call on your networks to involve their networks to help you as part of that crisis. And time and time again, it is those informal networks that you have that will make the difference in getting things happening in the middle of a crisis.
0: How would you describe the experience of leading through a crisis?
1: Sometimes it's like free-falling off a cliff, (laughs) particularly if it is really quite unexpected and uh, as much as you can have things in place, quite often you will find yourself absolutely free-falling off that cliff and just flying by the seat of your pants and that's when having that network of people helps, having people in the room and very quickly assessing a situation. But it is about stepping up and saying, I'm going to take responsibility here. I'm responsible and therefore giving permission to those people in the room to work with you to make that response happen. I've had, I guess, I want to say the the pleasure or the the challenge of leading a number of organisations through change, but also of being involved in fairly significant crisis response One of the things that that comes to mind is in the 2011 floods, I was the Director of Corporate Services out at Forensic and Scientific Services, and we were expecting uh, police and fire and emergency services had suggested that we might see up to 300 casualties during that flooding process, and we had to prepare. Obviously, all of those would come through the mortuary services At forensic and scientific services for autopsy and that's significantly more than we would normally have in a regular period so we had to very rapidly look at how we expand that but also you've got people there in the department who were impacted by the floods. So we had people who were caught by the floods. We had people who had family caught in the floods. We had people who had relatives who might be some of those people who were potentially going to come into the mortuary. So you're managing not only the operational crisis and what do we have to do to accommodate the significant workload that's going to come in, what do we need to do around our mortuary space, how are we going to manage the increased need around counselling and grief counselling, but also then having a look at what we had to do around managing the people side of that, so bringing in extra staff, but also then managing our own people who are going to be affected by the very crisis they were going to be responding to. So leading through a crisis is about firstly being able to take that responsibility, which gives everybody else permission to work with you, and then to take each part of that crisis on the journey with you and remember that there's always going to be a huge people side to that. And I think that when we're we around the table making decisions during a crisis, one of my favourite questions, and I'm, I'm big on questions, I think that Curiosity uh, and questioning gets us far more places in a crisis than pretending that we know the answers. So, the more questions you can ask, the better. So, one of my biggest questions is who's not at the table? So, when we're doing this planning and we're leading through a crisis and we're having these kind of war room sessions, I want to ask who's not at the table? Who's missing from the room? And how do we get their perspective? And that's a great way often, and we'll we'll whiteboard it, who's missing from the room? Is it people who are going to be affected by this? Have we not thought about, uh, there's large non-English speaking communities in this area. Have we thought about how you know, police are going to be responding to this? Do we know how aged care facilities are evacuating? So we talk about who are the people who aren't represented in the room and can we start to think about what their perspective might be, but also how can we quickly, via the networks we've got in the room, bring that perspective into decision making so that we know when we're making those decisions in an emergency or in a crisis, that we are truly trying to bring all those perspectives to bear, that we're not going to leave anyone out, and that we're not we don't have some kind of fairly giant blind spot? because often the things that you're undone by, uh you go, oh, I, I just didn't think of that. I just didn't consider that group. So to continually ask who's missing from the discussion, who are we not leading for or considering is really, I think, key when you're, when you're managing a crisis. But I think that as a leader, that being calm, you know, we can only do, we can only go at the speed we can go, not actually looking for blame in the beginning. It's actually, Where to from here? Where are we at now? And where do we need to be? What's gone before? We'll deal with that in the wash afterwards. And often afterwards, you've got much better perspective on blame and contributory negligence and all those sorts of things. In the moment, no one has perspective because they're caught up in the emotion. So for me, big rule, leave any kind of blame until after the event, until we're sailing out there in clear waters and we can get a bit of perspective on often the system and people failures that might have led to where we got to. So that calm, no blame, just working where to from here, making sure we've got everyone in the room and really paying attention to bringing people on the journey because any kind of crisis and change will be very emotional and there will be people who can take that emotion out and get the job done and there are other people who can't. So you really have to consider all the different type of people who will be caught up in this process and make sure that you in a caring manner take them on the journey but take them on the journey as quickly as you can because you know, time is often constrained. Having said that, I I love to lead through a crisis. I think crises provide amazing opportunities, amazing opportunities to change things that don't work, opportunities to find new ways of doing things, opportunities to get rid of things that don't don't serve you and your organisation. So, there's always that part of you whilst you're responding to some kind of crisis or change that's going hey what's an opportunity here now to slip in to get something really get something done this time Uh, and you'll see a lot of organizations will say well nothing's going to change until something's on the front page of the paper and in one respect that's very true it does often take some kind of large catalyst for organizations to to change so it's exciting it's a little nerve wracking, but it's also very exciting. And I think people who enjoy leading in change are the people who find that real opportunity in the change process.
0: And clearly you are enjoying the, as much as one can, enjoying the excitement of leading through a crisis. But as you pointed out earlier, not everyone is capable of coping with that sort of intensity. How do you work with your internal population, your employees, and also your stakeholders when you're having an external crisis?
1: So one of the things that I like to do with my staff and the things that we are working with clients on with Stormbirds is to actually know your internal, know your staff and how they're going to be in in these sort of situations beforehand and build internal organisational resilience and one of the things when you talk about building resilience, I'm a, I'm a worst-case scenario person. I feel that if you can plan out for the worst-case scenario and know what you're going to do, then it really helps you tackle every day. So if I go, right, I'm going in for some surgery this week, worst-case scenario, I'm going to die. Great. So <laughs> have I got my will sorted? Uh, will someone feed the cat? Uh, you know, have I notified everyone that I'm going in? Have I got my life in order? Is there anyone I want to call and say goodbye to? You know, all of those things. <laughs> uh, and and friends of mine will tell you I recently had some emergency gallbladder surgery last year. And middle of the night, met the anaesthetist, and the anaesthetist looked about eleven, <laughs> and I was like,
0: You've got "Oh, get on the job."
1: Yeah, and so with my pre anaesthetic on board, a little a little tear lily, I sent a text message out to some key friends going, look, I've just found myself needing emergency surgery. The anaesthetist looks like they're only 11. I might not come out the other side. Just need you all to know that, you know, I love you and the will's in the top drawer.
0: Crisis management applied to everyday life.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. But if you sit down and say, and, and a good example, a number of years ago we had a state election coming up And the opposition had very clearly defined what they were going to be doing if they got into power. And so I sat down with the key staff and said, right, we know that in the upcoming election, if the opposition gets in, they're going to cut staff numbers dramatically. So even though we're frontline services, what would it look like if we have to reduce our staff? So we sat down and we said, like, if we had to reduce our staff by 5%, how would we cope? What areas would go? 10%, you know, how would that affect the business? How would we get these things done? 15%, 20%. We ended up losing 27% and we'd only actually modelled to 25%. So, but, but we did that modelling and we worked out what were nice to have services, what were essential services, what could we outsource? So we did all of that kind of planning for what we thought was really worst case scenario. Then I sat down with all of them and said, well, okay, your jobs might go you're going to get a redundancy, here's the calculator, let's work out what we're all getting. If we didn't have mortgages and children at school and all the rest, what would we spend it on? So we had a bit of fun spending our money on Ferraris and overseas holidays and all those sorts of things. And then we went back to, well, okay, what would you do with the money seriously? How would you live? What would your next career be? We just did all of that planning in a bit of a session, which was a little confronting for them. But afterwards we kind of went, yeah, it was okay, because there wasn't that sense of... Urgency attached to it because it actually hadn't happened. We were just what ifing. And then we talked about all right, well, what if you're going to have to let these staff go? How would we do that? What would be the process? So we did quite a lot of what ifing, worst case scenario mapping. When the event actually came and all of these things came to pass, you know, those managers went, yeah, it's okay. I feel like this is going to be okay because we've already mapped it. We know what we're going to have to do. We know what worst case scenario looks like. So we'll be able to deal with whatever we get that's potentially less than that. So we were already prepared because your body's already had that initial shock in a safe space so that when it gets that shock in a time compressed space and it's all got to happen, we've already done the thinking. So you could fall back on that thinking that we'd done rather than getting caught up in the emotion of the moment. So, for me, that preparation and worst-case scenario planning around anything and everything, and I do it with my management teams and I do it with my staff quite often is, look, big storms happening next week. If all your roofs blow off, what are you all going to do? And We do a bit of planning. Okay, if the building goes out, you'll all be working from home. We just run through our business continuity plan. All of those things normalise for people what they would have to do in a crisis. It's the the same concept we have around fire drills. If you've done it a couple of times, you know, eating a sandwich and meandering down there with your handbag, (laughs) you'll feel better about doing it when it's actually an emergency and you're all kind of squashing each other to get down um, out of a burning building. The same with any kind of crisis stuff. The more you can talk about it beforehand, the more you can normalise how we would do that response and how those things would kick in, the Absolute better result you will get from those staff, and people will feel that they're already prepared. Because the biggest part of crisis and the biggest part of change is people being uncertain, and people not feeling comfortable, and people not feeling prepared, and people not knowing what's going to happen. One of the biggest things around crisis communication then is making sure when you talk to people that you let them know what you're doing but also what they can do because people need to know what they have to do and, and what they have to be prepared for. So I think they're really important things to get that in to, to give people things to focus on.
0: So there's a big consideration there of the internal operations and how they can be efficient and effective, how you can both prepare for crises by drilling uh, uh, the staff by by trying to, in some controlled way, experience what a crisis might bring. Um, but also that same thing that the um, Stoic first century Roman philosopher Seneca told us, that that we should always expect the worst because it's going to happen to us on on a daily basis. And if we expect that, we're prepared for it. And if it doesn't happen, then there's lots of joy.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I would prefer, prefer to be delightfully surprised at something going incredibly well, but I'm always prepared for what will happen if it doesn't. And that's, you know, setting the uh, setting the bar low so that you can uh, make sure that everything is accounted for and then being really excited when, when it goes well. And I think part of planning for organisational change is to know that when you've got large groups of people, they're not all going to react the same. They're not going to take that journey at the same time and be at the same place on the journey at the same time. So you do have to consider all those aspects of a change journey and all the aspects of people's experience of that constantly, because there will always be someone at those different points. And in a crisis, you'll have people who are at different points of acceptance of response of grief um and and you really it funnily enough does come back to my school teacher days when you're dealing with crisis and change you might have a large group of people but you really do have to consider each person as an individual and just as when you're a teacher with a classroom of 25 30 kids you can do activities that everybody does but you really have to consider the individual learning styles and capabilities of each of those students. And when you're managing organisational change or you're managing crises, you do have to remember that there will be, that each individual will be at a different stage of that journey and you have to adjust for that. And it means that as a leader, there's a lot going on. You're you're setting the tone for how we're responding. You're organising the people below you who are doing the operational stuff, but you're also then having to think about the emotional and mental health and well-being of the people who you are leading. It's a complex task, leading change, but it's also incredibly challenging and rewarding. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's very rewarding career, but it's also something that when you find yourself in the middle of it, having done preparation beforehand will really give you the um, give you the the tools, I guess, to find that opportunity and positive growth out of that change.
0: If you've done preparation beforehand, no doubt it's going to help you cope with the crisis as it's happening and all your staff as well. But can it help you avert the crisis in the first place?
1: Um, oh, ab- absolutely. Absolutely, and over the years there have been many things where I've had to come and manage a reputational crisis or um, some kind of issue, and you sit there going, you know, six months ago we were in the exact same space, Uh, similar thing happened and we have failed to learn from that, and countless organisations have failed to learn from things that have happened to them previously, so it happens again a large part really comes down to communication and particularly having worked in the healthcare system, uh, we know that a a large portion of patient issues that might then end up on the front page of the paper come down to poor communication. And we haven't communicated well with the patients. We haven't, uh, they haven't understood the consent process, all of those sorts of things. So communication is a really big thing. But also, we can often in that process of business planning and strategy, we can identify weaknesses in the organisation and mitigate some of those or we can work on some of those so that then the the worst case scenario we've predicted doesn't happen because we've already put some mitigations in place. And again, that's the thing that we work with clients to do is to identify where those possible pain points might be what those worst case scenarios might be and go, well, how are you already working to cover those gaps or to change those those issues that you've got in your organisation that might allow that to happen? So we can identify those now. We can work on mitigating them. We can work on improving communication around them or improving process around them uh, or putting staff into that particular area. We can do those things now To prevent them. And I think the current pandemic is a perfect example of you put all of those mitigations in place and then people go, oh, we just had a massive lockdown for three days and we've got no numbers. Why did we lock down? Well, (laughs) the reason we have no numbers is that we locked down. So quite often the preventative work doesn't get done because people don't see the benefit because what you don't see is what didn't happen and I think for us as crisis managers, I look back now and there are a couple of points over my career where I saw something and intervened at an early stage and absolutely avoided having us on the front page of the paper, but nobody ever says thank you for that because they didn't see it. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so much work that we as leaders do in the shadows and so everything appears smooth sailing and people go, oh, you know, aren't you lucky you had such a great run in that job, nothing happened on your watch. It's like yeah, there's, there's a reason for that um, and that's because we did the preventative work. We sat down, we did the worst case disaster planning, we looked for our pain points and we went, you know what, we're going to put some effort into fixing those so that we don't end up on the front page of the paper or we don't end up with a $2 million loss, or we don't end up with someone having a severe accident because we've actually done the work, the preventative work beforehand. So as a leader, it's really, really important that you get across very early in the piece in your role where the the possibilities and the pain points and the worst case scenarios are for your organisation and start to do some of this work because it will... It will save you and your organisation immeasurably. But it also, again, is that opportunity when you're doing that work to identify, well, we know we've got um, a vulnerability over here, but we know the only thing that's going to fix it is a $2 million system, for example. And you go, right, but we know that's not in the budget. But it's great then to scope. What sort of system would you need? What would that look like? and it's always been one of my experiences, is to always, if you know that there are things that you need in the organisation that would improve your um, resilience and improve the, the business to avoid these sorts of vulnerabilities, I've always got quotes and a funding proposal in my bottom drawer because when crisis happens is when people suddenly feel, oh, we better spend some money on this and it's great to know in advance what you want and be able to go, lovely, I'll, here's one I prepared earlier. I'd like this. Thank you. And on a number of occasions, we've ended up getting something that we desperately needed because something went wrong and because we were prepared for what we knew we needed to put in place. So that's my, that's my little sneaky <laughs> uh, sneaky thing is I've always got ideas for what we need to do and funding proposals and quotes sitting in my drawer so that if something happens, I can very quickly say what it is that we need. Uh, and that's that's been a, a great way of actually getting resources on a number of occasions in my career. So that's where I say there's great opportunities. So you have just as you have to prepare for the crisis, you have to prepare for the opportunities you can see that would come out of it.
0: Jane, when you have a crisis which you've missed, which you haven't prepared for and you've missed, how do you go about reframing that crisis and trying to make something positive come out of it?
1: Again, as we've said, every crisis is an opportunity and the opportunity to do better after the crisis, the opportunity to take that kind of hindsight and learn from it and grow. And I think it's one of the biggest things in change management, is finding those positive ways to look at the the new world post the change. And as a leader, that's very much, as a transformational leader, that's very much you need to have the ability to create a compelling vision to draw people towards. So I think it's that being able to articulate to people where the benefits can be and, and helping them, and that's part of that, Who's not in the room? Who's going to be impacted by this change? How can we find benefits in that change for them? And making sure that your change communications has benefits for everyone in the room. There'll be some people who won't get a benefit out of a change and who will be adversely impacted considerably by a change. And you have to work closely with those people to help to help them accept that and, and make those changes. And you can, where you can, give people as much choice as you can in deciding how how they will be affected and, and, and what they will accept in that process. But I think it's really, again, as a leader, about creating a compelling vision for what the new world can look like, what those opportunities can look like, how people themselves can reframe the change and working with them to reframe that in a way that makes sense to them. And then it's taking them on the journey doing all the leadership stuff, doing lots of celebrations of milestones uh, and, again, normalising the change. So talk about it, talking about those worst-case scenarios, talking about how you're going to mitigate it, talking about, right, the fact that your desk is now on the sunny side of the office. Well, you know, we're going to get blinds down there for you. Talking about what we'll do to start to help people take on those, those new ways of working or those new ways of doing things post the change and really involve them in that process. So again, if you can involve people as much in the decision-making, create that really compelling vision and then walk walk with them on the change.
0: So leadership is really about holding the hand of your employees, about giving them some sort of agency?
1: I think it depends very much on your leadership style, but I do as a, as I, and I think I'm very much an adaptive and transformational leader, it is that being able to look over the horizon and see what the world can look like and giving your staff the opportunity to see that future vision and work out how they can contribute to it. So you are very much, you're leading from the front and then you're down there with them, talking about and, and helping them move forward with the change. And then sometimes you're behind them kind of poking with a stick a bit. You're a bit like a, <laughs> a bit like a sheepdog. You, you're constantly you're constantly moving between up on the hill, looking at where we're going to and making strategic decisions about the best way, back down with the flock, making sure everyone's still sticking together and still understands where we're going and why we're doing it and giving them that added bit of incentive to get up over the hill. So that's, yeah, that's how I kind of see
0: the role. Jane, I wanna close on what advice you can give to our listeners, our students here in the MBA at USQ, as as they're graduating and moving on to some roles in middle management or even leadership in the near future, what advice would you give to them about leading through a crisis?
1: I think for everybody, it doesn't matter what stage of the journey you're at, whether you're managing four people or 4,000 people, the principles are, are roughly similar. And first is to be you, to be authentic. People sense when you're not being honest with them. People sense when you're not being real, whether when you're trying to put something on. And it's probably taken me... A long time to get to what I think is my authentic leadership space for a long time. I felt like I had to be a particular way, you know, particularly um, as a woman in largely male sort of dominated areas as a leader, you felt that you had to conform to particular ways of behaving. In other particular areas, you felt you were constrained by the type of organisation you're in. And I think now I feel much more now that I'm much more comfortable with being me and I'm very authentic, I ask a lot of questions. I don't believe that I know everything. So it's about being myself. It's about asking lots of questions. It's about considering who's not at the table. It's about looking after each and every person that you're responsible for and remembering they're an individual with feelings and thoughts and hopes and aspirations and mortgages and children and cats and whatever, that you, you really have to... Consider people as people, not, not as a commodity. That you have to be really curious about where we're headed and why we're headed and what we're doing, and be really open to taking new and different approaches to that. And as I say, that's so like being authentic, being curious, being caring about those people around you. Uh, and I think giving people a purpose. You know, we talk about in any kind of crisis communications, we talk about, you know, telling people what you know and what you don't know so that people have got the parameters, what you're doing, but the big thing is telling them what they can do. People in times of crisis and change, they want some certainty and often the only certainty is what they've been told they have to do. And that's why, again, in this current pandemic, It's been very difficult because they've been, in different countries, lots of conflicting, we'll have masks on, we'll have masks off. You need to be vaccinated. You should have this vaccination for this age group, that vaccination. All of the changing messages have made people uncertain. So the one thing as a leader you have to do is give as much certainty as you can. So set those parameters. This is what we don't know. This is what we do know this is what we're doing, this is what you have to do and be as firm as you can with they're the things you have to do. If that changes, you tell people it's changed, you tell them why, you tell them at what point in time it changes. And I think all of us observing what we're calling this unfolding continual crisis around the globe, there are some really good lessons for anybody wanting to lead a crisis in that. This is the pandemic that the world knew was coming, but most people, including governments, were not prepared for. People have single supplier lines to China and weren't prepared for when that went down. People, um, you know, had, had all of these systems set up that have now been affected by the pandemic and they just hadn't done that mitigation around it. One of the things the World Health Organisation, talked to a friend who works over there, Australia had actually one of the best pandemic plans in the world. And uh, Dr Jeanette Young, who I've worked with for a number of years, was key to some of the, the pandemic planning that we've done nationally and certainly that we've done in Queensland. And we've had lots of wonderful, sounds awful to say wonderful disasters in Queensland, but we had Zika, we had Hendra, we had dengue. We know how to deal with those things. So we had really good plans and mitigations in place. But when you look at how a lot of other areas have handled this, and particularly internationally, there are some great lessons here for people who are aspiring to leadership, who are interested in leading through crises, to look at how the different governments have managed it, how the different leaders have messaged it, what kind of message has been really effective and what hasn't. And we look at, you know, New Zealand messaging has been amazing uh, and it's being used as the kind of, you want to talk about gold standard, uh, around the world. There's fabulous opportunities to look at how we've got it right and how we've got it potentially wrong uh, all across the world at the moment. So I think crisis leadership is probably having its little day in the sun, which is nice because normally it's in the middle of a storm. And it's it's a, a good opportunity for anybody as a leader to have a look at how this is being done and to look at the different leadership styles and work out where you fit between all of those.
0: Well, authentic, curious, caring and communicative with an air of certainty. What great advice, Jane? Every leader should probably have that printed on a badge and placed on their jacket.
1: (laughs) But the problem, Daniel, is there are so many things you have to remember as a leader that you just have, you know, sticky notes everywhere. (laughs) Uh, I, I, I think the authentic stuff is the key. You know, it's knowing the biggest gift that you can give your team is actually knowing yourself and understanding how you respond and what triggers you and being able to lead, being able to step above your personal triggers and your personal response and lead a team from that place of certainty and calmness and evenness. So that being authentically you and understanding yourself is probably the biggest thing you can do. And the second thing to do is to read and read widely because all of those sticky notes will be imprinted in your brain when you read about change management and leadership and people's autobiographies and see how they've managed things and look at the worst case scenarios that they've gone through. My biggest tip is you know, that kind of self-awareness and self-development around that.
0: What excellent advice, Jane. This has been a great discussion. Thanks very much for coming on the show.
1: No problems, Daniel. That was lovely. Thanks for having me.
0: Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast.